This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Again, we're reading from Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, Park Church. Good to see you. Uh, my name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And before we jump into Psalm 118, I just wanted to mention something. Um, so I moved here March of 2020. Brilliant timing. Um, and I had one Sunday with the church as normal. And then after that, it was a weird Sunday. 
and then we were shut down for a while. And one of the lessons that I hope we're learning, we have learned through COVID, is what a blessing it is to gather with God's people and sing praises to him. Would you say amen? Uh, I, I think that's something, what I'm hoping is that COVID has taught us never to take this for granted again. Um, so anyway, for me, it was, it's just such a blessing before I come up here to speak, to hear you all singing, you have beautiful voices, and it's just beautiful to hear this room filled. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Well, that's enough of that. And we're so glad you are here. Uh, we're going to jump into our series, our summer series that we're calling Christ in the Psalms. And we are looking at Psalm 118 today. You just heard that read. And as you heard it read, you were probably thinking, man, there is a lot going on in the Psalm. It is thick. So, so to help us really just get started today. And I want to boil down this psalm to con its most basic level. Really, what is this psalm ultimately about? And to help us do that, we're going to look at verse 5, because it's kind of the key verse for the whole psalm. So if you would, look at uh, verse 5, Psalm 118. And notice what the psalmist says. He says, Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Now let's read it again. Let's all together out loud read verse five. So here we go. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to pull out some of the key words out of that verse. And through doing that, I think we're going to get a good understanding of what this psalm is about, what it's driving at. First word is this. Notice the word distress. He says, out of my distress. Now that is an amazing word. It could be translated a lot of different ways. It could be translated uh, restricted. So out of my restriction, uh, it could be translated narrow. So I feel like I'm hemmed in, I'm in this narrow space. It could be translated tight. So like in some tight place, constricted, the NIV translates it hard pressed. Okay, and to take it even further, the root of that word that's translated distressed is the word we get claustrophobia from. All right, so just from that one word, you pretty, get a pretty good understanding of the situation that the psalmist found himself in. Now, you'll see a little bit more the context for that as we go through the psalm. Uh, the other word is called, notice that, called, he says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. I called out to God. I prayed to God. But notice it's in the past tense. I called when I was distressed, when I was hard pressed, when I felt claustrophobic, right? I called out to God. So what's going on here is the psalmist is recounting something from his past and Israel's past. He's looking back to a time where God delivered him, delivered Israel, and he's kind of speaking to that and praising God for that deliverance. And then notice uh, the last words here, set me free. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and did something. What did he do? Well, he set me Free. That could literally be translated, brought into an open space. Get the imagery. So he felt cramped in, hard pressed, pressed down, constricted, but God 
moved in, he called out, he prayed, he asked for God to move. God answered and delivered him to open spaces. So in other words, the psalmist is recounting a time in his life when he was in a tight spot, hard pressed, felt like he was being crushed. And then God set him free by giving him open space. He removed the pressure he was under and allowed him to, in a sense, allowed him to, to breathe again. Now, many of you at this point are saying, hey, that's really nice for him, but what about me, right? Because maybe you find yourself in one of those kind of tight spots right now. Maybe it's something you're going through at work. Uh, maybe it's a certain relationship. Maybe it's a financial issue. Maybe you're questioning your career choice and you feel kind of hemmed in by the choice you made and you don't know what to do about it. Maybe you're a new parent. I've heard a lot of babies crying today, which we love, it's beautiful. Or maybe you're just a parent in general. And that's me, I'm not a new parent, but I'm a parent. And sometimes you feel like hard pressed, like things are pressing in, the world's coming in on you. Maybe someone's attacking you. Not necessarily physically, though maybe that, but maybe emotionally. Um, maybe someone's slandering you right now, trying to destroy your reputation. Uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about a situation I went through years ago with that. Maybe you're experiencing a health crisis and you just feel pressed in. But whatever the issue is, you feel like you, you're hard pressed, you're being crushed, and you're calling out to God to give you some relief to deliver you and give you some of that space that the psalmist received when he called out. But for you right now, it seems like nothing is changing. No matter how many times you call out, no matter how many times you ask for God to move, to fix the situation, to change it, to give you a break, at least at this moment, it doesn't seem like he's doing anything. A number of years ago, I was pastoring a church in Southern California. I started, the church was about 50 years old when I got there, and I was 32. That, my friends, is a recipe for disaster, right? 32-year-old coming to pastor a 50-year-old church. And um, loved it, kind of came in with lots of energy, both barrels blazing, kind of got in. But early on, I knew there was going to be a decision that as a leadership team, we were gonna have to make if things didn't change. Uh, it was such a big decision that actually the year before we made the decision, I tried to leave the church. I'm like, I don't wanna make this decision. I know how bad this is gonna be. I like already knew, I had already anticipated the response of the decision and I was trying to get out of it. I was begging God, I was like, God, let me leave this church. Let me go preach somewhere else, let me go pastor somewhere else. I don't want to go through what I'm going to have to go through if we make this decision. Well, God said, nope, you're staying. Love that when he does that, don't you? So a year later, we, we as a leadership team knew it was time to make the decision. The decision was, it was time for us as a church to close down a ministry that had been a part of our church for like 32 or 30, almost as old as I was, it had been around that long uh, as a part of the church. And the ministry was a private Christian school that was started as a ministry of the church. So for those of you who kind of grew up in Christian schools, connected to churches, 
you're already feeling my pain, aren't you? Some of you came up, uh, some came up after the last service was like, oh man, I know exactly how that would have been because they were kind of in that situation uh, in school. And so we prepared ourselves. We knew what was going to happen. We knew, we kind of had an idea of what the response was going to be, but nothing really could have prepared us for what we experienced. Uh, the day we made the decision, we had prepared a press release, all right? So a full page press release. And you might be like, what? Like press release? You're closing a school down? Why press release? You got to understand like the community we came from wasn't as large as Denver, all right? So closing down a school that had been around for 30 some years was going to be a big deal in that community. And so we prepared this big full page press release the reporter showed up from the newspaper like we knew he would. We gave him the press release, waited to see the article the next day, and that guy had taken one sentence out of this entire press release, took it completely out of context, and just made us look like monsters. And that was the beginning of, of it all. And, and because I'm speaking publicly and there's an internet and this is gonna go very far out. I'm gonna just like be really careful here, but I just wanna give you a little bit of my experience. So it, it got so bad that within the community, I mean, people were vilifying me, vilifying the church, vilifying the other leaders. I was actually called the Antichrist. That's, that's pretty amazing. Like I'm looking for, where's 666? I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's me, but so I was called the Antichrist. My wife and I, we, we would actually go into grocery stores or like Target and we would be heading down the aisle and people connected to the school would see us coming and they would literally turn their backs in disgust and walk out, like walk away from us. I, walk, I was in like in a sporting goods store one time and I walked up behind somebody and I was like coming up to greet her because she, I knew her, she was connected to that and all that. And I came up to greet her. She turned around and almost jumped through the roof. Like Satan had just shown up and like almost ran to get out. Like that's how crazy it got. We knew it was going to be bad. Now we didn't think, we knew, we, we really didn't think it was going to be that bad in the church. And it really didn't end up being that bad in the church because not that many people in the church had their kids in the school, but we knew what it was going to be like in the community but we had no, really no idea that it would be like that. And for that next year and a half, uh, it was really, really bad. Honestly, I think I could probably go back even today and it would be weird. It would be weird. For a year and a half, I was begging God, like, God, fix this, deliver me. And there were so many times where I felt like he wasn't listening, like he didn't care knowing the truth about God, like he could fix this. He's all powerful. Why isn't he doing something here? Why is he making me go through this after we did what we thought was right? Have you ever been there in a situation similar to that or like that, or you felt that kind of turmoil? Maybe you're there right now. So the question is, what do we do when, notice this, not if, when we find ourselves in those life situations that are causing us to feel hard pressed and like the weight of the world is bearing down on us. What do we do when we face those situations? Because we will all be there 
multiple times in our life. Well, what the psalmist does for us, he gives us some parameters here. He gives us some help. He would say, I think, remember some things. When you go through that and the world's crushing in, you need to remember some things. Let me give you three of them. Remember the steadfast love of God. In the midst of it, when it feels like you're not, God can't love you and allow this to happen in your life, remember that no matter what, he absolutely loves you and that his love is steadfast. Also, remember the power of God and the presence of God. As you're going through that and you're dealing with that, remember the power of God and the presence of God. And then the last one, remember that ultimately God has already delivered you through Christ. God has, the deliverance has already come. It's in Jesus. So first, remember the steadfast love of God. Let's look at Psalm 118. We'll read verses one through four and then jump down to the end of the psalm. And today, there just I want to say, there, there's so much in this psalm. There's no way we're going to be able to tease it all out. So I just want to read a lot of the psalm again, let God's word kind of wash over us, and then I'll just talk about the things that the Lord has kind of laid on my heart in regards to these verses. So verse one, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he's good. Well, how has he revealed that goodness? For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Look down at verse 28. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I love that word extol. It means I'm going to boast about you. I'm going to brag about you. I'm not going to make it about me. It's about you. You are good. You are great. I'm going to extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Verse 29. For his steadfast love endures Forever. So you see in just those verses, five times the psalmist repeats, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That means if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to bring you into right relationship with God, you can know for a fact that his love towards you will never change. It's a, a covenantal love. He's made a promise. He's not going to go back on his word. He will never love you any more than he loves you right now, and he'll never love you any less than he loves you right now. Why? Because his love for you is steadfast. That means it can't change. He is loyal to you. That's what steadfast love means. It's a loyal love. He's loyal to us even when we are not loyal to him. When we are unfaithful, he remains faithful because his love for us and acceptance of us is not based on our performance. Isn't that good news? Like I think back over last week, just last week, I'll think back just over yesterday and I am so thankful that his love for me is not based on my performance. It's based on the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. Amen? 2,000 years ago, in his perfect life, 
his substitutionary death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. Based on what Jesus has done for us and us being placed in Christ, we never have to worry about whether or not his love for us will change. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5 and then 8 through 9. But God, I love that. It starts with God. It doesn't start with us. It starts with God. But God, being rich in mercy, listen to this, because of the great love with which he loved us. Never get this wrong. He doesn't love us because we love him. He loves us first. John says, we only love because he first loved us. And notice the, our condition, right? Or I used the word I used earlier. Our performance, what it was when God chose to love us. He goes on, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That was our performance right there. Dead. Spiritually dead. In rebellion against God. Yet, God loved us in spite of it. Then he goes on, verse 8, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you find yourself doubting God's love for you right now because of all that you're going through, and believe me, I get it, I've been there. I'm right there with you. I understand that. Then remember again what the apostle John said in 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. No, our love for God is not the example. It's not the standard of what love is and what steadfast love is. Because our love towards God is not steadfast. We're not always loyal. We're not always faithful. So in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's the miracle. That's the amazing thing. And sent his son. Here's how he displayed that love for us 2,000 years ago. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation is so important to get the depth of what John is saying here. It says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is this idea of the sacrifice that absorbed and diverted wrath away, right? So, so the wrath and the judgment that, that we deserve because of our sin, because of our trespasses, because of our rebellion, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly took on flesh to be the propitiation, to stand in our place and absorb what we deserved. He was the propitiation for our sins. So the next time you're wondering, does God love me? Does he see what's going on? Remember what God did for you in Christ and the eternal ramifications of that. And and here's something else I think we often miss while we're going through trials and suffering in life. And this is going to be kind of weird, so just hang on, all right? Especially if you're not yet a believer, you're like, man, what kind of love is that? You're talking about a God of love and that's how he loves you sometimes? Like, no thanks. But here it is. 
The very fact that we go through trials is an evidence of God's love. The very fact that we go through difficulties and hardships and trials is an evidence of God's love. Look back at Psalm 118, verse 18. Verse 18, look what it says. The Lord has disciplined me severely. So the psalmist understands what's going on in his circumstances is because one of the reasons is because God was disciplining him. We don't know what it was. We don't know what the issue was. We don't know why uh, at this point and that God disciplined him this way. All we know that the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, this is partly because what God wanted to do in me was discipline me. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but notice this, but he has not given me over to death. Notice, he wasn't trying to destroy him. It wasn't because God was angry with him. It wasn't vindictive. It was actually because God loved him that he was disciplining him. Uh, apparently, God was using this crushing experience to correct him, bring him closer in relationship with him, God was disciplining him because he loved him and wanted him to experience the life as God designed it to be lived. And so God was willing to bring this disciplining into his life for the purpose of transforming him. This is, this is also what God's love look, looks like. God's love is not just delivering us from the pain and the suffering in the moment. Sometimes that would be the worst thing he could actually do for us. Sometimes the best thing he could do for us is allow us to sit in it and feel his correction. Now, if you're like, bro, I am not tracking with that. Okay, let me show you that I'm at least not making it up. Okay, so go to Hebrews, if you would. The book of Hebrews towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this in the Bible so you can see I'm not making this up because I know some of you are looking at me like, uh, no, no way. All right, so I'm gonna show you this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses six through 11. I won't read the whole thing. You can do that on your own. I just wanted to show you where it was, but look at Hebrews 12, verse six. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. I told you I wasn't making it up. That's what the Bible teaches. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He goes on to say, be thankful that you're being disciplined because it means you're a child of God. Human parents get this. He uses human parents as an illustration. Human parents get this. If you love your kids, you're gonna discipline them. And there's all kinds of different philosophies there. I understand that. But at the end of the day, kids need discipline from their parents. And it's one of the ways that parents show their kids they love them. And, and the author of Hebrew goes on to say like, listen, if you as human parents know to do that and, and you do that, even though you don't do it perfectly, how much more does God know that? But yet he's always gonna do it perfectly. He's always gonna do it in holiness. He's always 
always going to bring correction in love. And I'll be honest with you, as a parent, I can't even comprehend that because unfortunately, yes, there have been times where I brought discipline in my kid's life and it wasn't done in love. I was just angry. I was just upset. And that's part of the problem, right? Because many of us have experienced discipline from our parents out of anger. And we, we receive discipline and we're like, wait, it really doesn't feel like you're loving me right now. So what we have to do is we have to like set that aside by God's grace and understand that when God brings discipline, it's always holy, it's always right, and he's always doing it out of love. This doesn't mean that every trial you go through is necessarily God correcting you for a particular sin in your life. All right, so if you're struggling right now, you're going through a bunch of stuff, you feel pressed in, you feel like just hemmed in, you're, you are, feel like the weight of the world's crashing down on you, that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, see, God's correcting you, there's some sin in your life, you better investigate. Because we also know from the rest of the Bible that God actually does use trials that aren't necessarily correction or discipline. He uses them in our life to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. And at the end of the day, if you are a believer, that's what your heart longs for. And because we're fallen, broken creatures and not yet perfect, it requires trials and difficulties because it's in those places that we meet God in unique ways and he transforms us. I definitely experienced that from the situation I was talking about earlier in California. If you would have asked me, like, before that massive decision and all the fallout of it, I would have been the person who would have said, I don't really care what anybody thinks about me. Do you know anybody like that? They'll say, like, I don't care what people think about me. I'm just going to say it, right? Like, so I kind of had that attitude. It's like, I don't care. As a pastor, I'm going to open up the Bible. I'm going to preach everything it says. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. As a leader, I'm going to lead in the way that I think God wants us to lead. And if people don't like it, oh, well get over it, right? Like that was what I thought, that was my attitude. I'll be honest with you. And then when all that hit the fan, I realized, whoa, I have been lying to myself. I have made an idol out of what people think about me. My identity, the way I saw myself was 100% shaped by people's opinions of me, how they thought about me, what they said about me, and whether or not I was being successful. If everything like the church metrics, believe it or not, pastors actually talk about that stuff. So <laughs> the church metrics, like if they, all the numbers were going up and to the right, I felt, oh yes, God's a blessing, God loves me. And when they were down, ugh. What did I do wrong? Or what did everybody else do wrong? Right? I wouldn't blame myself. It's got to be somebody else, right? But it was in the midst of the trial. It was in the midst of all that tragedy and difficulty and being hard-pressed that God revealed that to me. Now, why did he need to reveal that to me? Because he needed to show me that little G God can't stand up to what you're going to face in your life. You need me, and I love you enough to show you what you're doing. And by God's grace destroy that thing in your life. So the next time you go through a trial like that, you're gonna be ready, you're gonna be stronger, you're gonna be more prepared. 
So when you're going through one of those seasons of life where it feels like everything and everyone is coming against you, remember God's steadfast love for you. Next, remember God's power and presence. Remember God's power and presence. Am I the only one who's sweating in here right now? It is so hot in here. What is the deal, Denver? Come on. Wow. Remember God's power and presence. See, the easiest thing you can do when you're in a tough season, when it feels like the whole world is against you, the easiest thing to do is forget that God is all-powerful. The easiest thing to do is forget that God is actually with you, that he's for you. And that person isn't more powerful than God. That situation isn't more powerful than God. That disease isn't more powerful than God. And that all-powerful God is on your side. He's for you. Let's just read some verses. Let's read some verses. Look at verse 6. Psalm 118, verse 6. We'll go to verse 16. Just going to read them quick. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. You could say the Lord is with me. It's the same thing. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. We're going to come back to that in a minute. All nations surrounded me. Now we're getting into the issue. This is the deal. This is what was this incredible situation he found himself in. Apparently, this was one of the times in Israel's history where they were being surrounded and other nations were trying to destroy them. All nations surrounded me, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off or I pushed them away. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side, and in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. You see how this is getting more intense? They surrounded me, then they surrounded me on all sides, and they, now they're surrounding me like bees. They're buzzing all around. I can't get away from them. They went out like a fire among the thorns, which just means they just spread. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard. Now they're physically getting to me. They're actually pushing me. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength. Notice that. Not my ingenuity, not my plans, not other people. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. This is what happens when people realize that they aren't their own saviors. They actually want to sing to God. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So the question for us today is who are we trusting in? What are we trusting in? When all hell breaks loose in your life, when it seems like the world is caving in, when everywhere we turn, it seems like something else is going wrong in our life, who or what are we turning to to deliver us? You see, the question isn't, will we turn to someone or will we trust something? We will turn to someone or something for refuge, for help. 
We will. The question is, who or what will it be? Will it be God or a substance? Will it be God or distractions? I think that's a big one coming out of COVID. We were already pretty good at distracting ourselves, but man, we got real, we're masters now. Like we got our doctorate in distraction. Will it be God or putting our hopes in politicians? Will it be God or money? Notice again, verses eight and nine. The psalmist said, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man or the power of kind of human ingenuity. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, people with earthly power. So do we really believe that? Do, do we really believe that it's better to trust in the Lord, to, to let God be our refuge. So how can we tell whether or not we believe it? Here's the answer. How constant or how consistently do we do what the psalmist did in verse five? Look back at verse five. What did he do when he was in distress? Out of my distress, I what? Called on the Lord. Didn't say turned to a politician. It didn't say I took substances. It didn't say like I figured it out with my own plan. No, it says I called on the Lord. It says he turned to God in prayer. Why? Because he knew that God alone is all powerful and, it, and is the Lord over every situation and every person. He knew that there was nothing too hard or too big for God because he believed that he took, because he believed that he took refuge in the Lord through prayer. And this statement I'm about to say is really, really convicting for me. All right, so understand like I'm saying this for me. And if it's revealing to you, awesome. Our prayer lives are the best indicators as to how much we believe in the power of God to change things. Does that make sense? Like our prayer lives really are the best indicators of how much we believe in the power of God to actually change things. It's not your systematic theology. Like you can believe all the right things about the omnipotence of God but when it hits the fan, do you go to that God for help? Or do you try and manage it yourself? If we really believe God is all powerful, prayer will have a very prominent place in our lives when going through trials and when we are. And I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Prayer doesn't have a prominent place in our lives often when we are hemmed in and hard pressed and going through difficulties because it doesn't have a prominent place in our lives when we aren't. Because when we aren't, life's good, everything's great. I don't, I would never say this, but I don't really need God, I'm good, thanks. I wouldn't say that, but I live like that. Is it just me? Are you guys tracking with me on this? Like, is that convicting for anybody? Because I'm sitting, I'm sweating, man, because like, this is very, very convicting for me. All right. Okay, last. Now, the last thing we need to remember when we go through this, remember God's ultimate deliverance. And, and I don't have time to unpack all this, 
I wish I did, but I'm going to try and summarize it. Verses 19 through 27, you get this imagery of the psalmist and a large community of Israelites heading to Jerusalem, heading up to the temple, being allowed into the temple to offer praises to God, give their offerings, give their tithes, and offer their sacrifices to God as an act of worship and as an act of thanksgiving. Not to earn God's favor, but because they've already experienced God's favor in their deliverance. And all the way as you read through that section, do it on your own, you're gonna see that, man, there are all kinds of allusions to Jesus. Jesus is everywhere there. A um, couple things you'll see, like verse 26, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. All four gospels quote that as Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus is showing up as the ultimate deliverance, the ultimate deliverer. The psalmist experienced deliverance temporarily, but he, kneel, he still needed the deliverer. Because one day he was gonna stand before God and being delivered out of a battle is one thing, but standing before holy God is something completely else. And he needed the deliverer, and so Jesus showed up and was the ultimate deliverer. You see this language, the stone, verse 22 to 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Jesus used that exact same language to describe himself as the stone that was rejected, who, had, who was becoming the cornerstone in his parable of the tenants. You remember that parable? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what he was doing in that parable is he's showing them, even though he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, that was all part of God's plan to bring salvation and deliverance for the world. Uh, one commentator, Dennis Turk, Tucker, said this about the New Testament use of that passage. He said, the New Testament writers wanted to affirm that the establishment of the crucified Lord as the cornerstone had nothing to do with the work of humans. Rather, the Lord had done this. And this was not a messianic plan gone awry. That's what a lot of people think. Like, oh, Jesus came to become this earthly king initially and they rejected him. So, oh, well, going to the cross, plan B. Nope, that was never what it was. It's not a messianic plan gone awry. It was the very work of the living God. The end of verse 27, it says, as they're heading into the temple, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They knew there was a need to offer a sacrifice to be in the presence of God. They knew that that, that was the only deliverance they had at that point to be able to enter into the temple, and then John in the New Testament comes along referring to Jesus' sacrifice in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus' sacrifice for us at the cross and his resurrection three days later was what made possible our eternal deliverance.
And this is what, to me, is just amazing about this passage. We told you the very, I think I, yeah, I spoke on Psalm 113. That was the beginning of what's known as the Passover Psalms. So 113 to 118. Here, uh, the first few of those Psalms, 113, 114, would have been sung before the Passover. And then the last number would have been sung at the end of the Passover before they were done with the meal. So remember what the gospel account says, that they, before they went off into the night, they left the Passover meal, it says that they sang a hymn. So the last thing that Jesus was singing before he went out and was betrayed was a song about being the stone that the builders were rejecting. And this is God's plan. Imagine what he must have felt singing that, knowing he was about to experience that. And why did he do that? To bring deliverance. And not just temporary deliverance, eternal deliverance. So my question for you today is, not how are you experiencing necessarily kind of temporary deliverance right now? That's important and it does matter. But ultimately, have you experienced eternal deliverance by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If not, do it today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity you've given us to gather together and sing praises to you, to worship you in song, in hearing your word read and taught. And now, God, we, we have the responsibility to respond to what we've heard today. God, we know that when your word is read, when your word is taught, you are speaking to your people. And so, God, we want to hear exactly what you have for us. So, Spirit, would you in this moment continue the work you've been doing? Would you implant into our hearts and minds exactly what we need to hear from you today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.